going to be starting a new study tonight in the book of James. We'll start out by asking this question, what is the book of James about? Uh, sometimes we look at the book of James, and because it starts on this note, we think that it's about trials, and that's certainly one of the themes. We think that perhaps it gives us the contrast between faith and works, which it certainly does in chapter 2. Or we think that it's about the contrast between the poor and the rich, which is certainly another of the themes. But there are many parallels, I think, between the book of James in the New Testament and the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. They are truths that are organized around common themes, but occasionally the transition from one to another seems abrupt. But the overall picture is it shows us God's wisdom that he is producing in us a kind of maturity that would not come in our own strength, but only in the process that God is working in our lives. And so as we turn to James chapter 1, probably would be helpful for us to consider a, a few background things about the book. Uh, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, if you're familiar with the New Testament, this probably raises a question for you because there's at least four men named James that we see in the New Testament. And so which of these is the one who actually wrote the book? There was James, father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but this James is mentioned in Luke 6, 16, and Acts 1. There is then James, son of Alphaeus, mentioned in Matthew 10, 3, and possibly in Acts 1 as well. There is James, son of Zebedee and brother of John. He's mentioned in the list of the disciples as well. Uh, he's not a good candidate for the authorship of this book because he's martyred by probably around A.D. 44, according to Acts 12 and verse 2. And so then, uh, the most well-known James, the James who becomes the leader of the church of Jerusalem, the one who is not an apostle but comes to have significant leadership within the church, is James, the half-brother of Jesus. And I think that he is the best candidate for having written this book. He is someone who describes himself as a servant of Christ, which is fascinating to think about. He could say, you know, Jesus is my brother, but instead, in humility, he recognizes himself as a servant of Christ. Furthermore, he's one who was not converted until after the resurrection. Think about in John 7 where uh, Jesus' family basically says to him, at least his brothers and sisters say, hey, you know, you want to be a good prophet? Go down to Jerusalem, make a name for yourself, get the word out, and, and you'll, you might actually succeed at what you're doing. Not the, not the attitude of belief that you would expect from someone who was really listening to the words that Jesus was speaking and yet, by the time we come to Acts 15, he's clearly a leader in the church at Jerusalem. Uh, some have pointed to possible grammatical parallels between what James says in Acts 15 and the way that the book here is written, some of the things about the style and the vocabulary. We have such a small sample in Acts 15 that that's probably not the strongest of arguments. But all in all, I think that James, the half-brother of Christ, is the one who wrote this book. When was it written, then? probably between A.D. 45 and A.D. 50, a very early epistle before the Jerusalem Council, most likely. Uh, this probably explains the lack of references to Jew and Gentile relationships. Uh, the description in verse 1 of the 12 tribes who are scattered fits very well with the time period in which the early church had been started to be driven out from Jerusalem, but much of the missionary work by Paul and others had not yet taken place. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, Josephus, who, as we know, uh, is somewhat prone to exaggerate and perhaps is not the most reliable source, and yet he would put the date at the death of James around AD 62, which would put the writing of this book sometime before that. Who then is the audience? Well, it says in verse 1, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad. Uh, the twelve tribes who were scattered were initially scattered in God's judgment in the Assyrian and the Babylonian captivities in response to their ongoing and unrepentant idolatry. But the scattering that he has in mind is most likely not that one, but rather the one that takes place uh, with the efforts of Saul and the other uh, Pharisees, religious leaders in Jerusalem, who sort of have this wave of persecution breaking out against the early church, which causes them to be scattered to a variety of other places. Why then does James write his book? One of his goals is to encourage Jewish believers who have been scattered. Another is to address the confusion between faith and works. What's the relationship between the keeping of the law, the profession of faith in Christ, something that would have been perhaps a particular concern of these Jews. And then there's a great deal of practical application, things that dealt with particular issues in the early days of the church, things that dealt with uh, the realities of persecution. Uh, if you were a Jew, for example, and you had come out of a context that said, as it does in, for example, Deuteronomy, here are the blessings if you follow me faithfully, here are the curses if you disobey me, and then you see seemingly the curses and the persecution and the difficulties coming upon you, despite the fact that you're f truly following God as you follow His Son Christ, it would have raised in your mind these questions. Why is this taking place? Uh, what is God's view on this whole circumstance? And so James addresses some of those issues as well. And uh, there are powerful sections, like the section on the tongue that speaks of both its power and its danger, of the contrast between earthly and uh, heavenly wisdom of the danger of presuming upon the future, but also being diligent as we acknowledge God's sovereignty in all circumstances of life, and then showing concern for fellow believers as we come down to chapter 5. And so the section that we're going to look at tonight is from chapter 1, verses 2, down through verse 18. And it's a little bit of a longer section than I think we probably uh, tend to look at in a book like James. The tendency is probably to take a shorter section like verses 2 through 4 and focus just on the what, does, what do trials produce or the God wants us to have wisdom or those sorts of things. But what I want us to do by taking this larger section is to see the connections within the larger section and to see why are trials a helpful thing, a good thing, why do trials um, mature us, reward us? How do they remind us of God's work? Verse 2 says, Count it, consider it, reckon it all joy when you encounter various trials. This is not a denial of the fact that they are trials, it's not a minimizing of the difficulty of those trials. It is a, it sounds too formal, a mathematical equation that says, what is the end result? Joy, God's glory, my good. Despite all of the terms that don't seem to make sense put next to each other in the equation. 
That's what he continues in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Sometimes people have said this counting it joy is, um, you get the idea that it's sort of just sort of nothing bothers you. You're just sort of laid back. You don't let anything get to you. But the reality is, even the, the most easygoing, laid-back person has moments when life is overwhelming. So that's not really the point of what he's saying. What he is saying is, there is joy to be found in the midst of difficulty because we know that testing of our faith produces endurance. Why is endurance a good thing? Why would God test someone's faith? Well, we think what we will look at in a month or two in the book of Genesis. God certainly tests Abraham's faith, right? And the conclusion of God having tested Abraham's faith is Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. God tests our faith to strengthen it, to reveal it, to show it to others. A lot of times we don't like tests. We have to study for them. We have to live with whatever grade we get on them. Um, depending on how involved your parents were in your lives, there was... Uh, associated praise or displeasure at how you did on the test. All of these things are connected with tests from a human standpoint. But when God tests his people, it is to produce endurance. And the endurance is a continuing faith despite difficulty. The endurance is not, I can go out and run a marathon. There's probably only a handful of us that could do that. That's not the endurance he's talking about. The endurance that he's talking about is continuing to follow God in the good times and in the bad times when it seems as though everyone is excited about the coming of the Messiah, when those in authority and much of the surrounding population sees you as an outcast and a traitor and rejects you and wants you dead. Will you still follow God in that sort of circumstance? That's the sort of thing that James's audience is dealing with. Well, then what does endurance lead to? It's perfect result that you may be perfect and complete, that you may be mature, lacking in nothing. God tests us so that our faith would continue, so that we will reach maturity. Sometimes we see maturity as something that we have to work toward, and there's certainly an aspect of it that's true. But ultimately, maturity is something that God produces in us. Um, in the same way that as we go from being children to being adults, there are things that we do that affect the process, like what food we eat and how much sleep we get and uh, whether we learn to be uh, in control of ourselves or just sort of doing whatever we feel like. There are things that we can do that affect the process, but much of the process we can't really control. When you have a growth spurt, it's not as though you're like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a I'm gonna shoot up today, three inches. That's not how it works. It's the way that God has designed us. It's all of these processes that are happening behind the scenes. Maturity in a similar way is something that, yes, we need to do all that God has called us to do, but it's ultimately something that he is producing in us. 
And then we come to verse 5, and sometimes we look at verse 5 when it says, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And we sort of, you know, sort of take this really broad. If I don't have wisdom about anything in the whole world, if I pray to God, he's going to show me what I'm supposed to do. But keep this idea in its context. Not that God can't give us wisdom about any aspect of life, but what is the specific wisdom that James's audience needed? I'm not yet arrived at maturity. I don't understand what God is doing in my life. I don't know why this trial has taken place and why I'm now cast out from my family and my home and my work and everything that's familiar to me, and now I'm in a completely different country, and all of these things are an upheaval in my life. How can I honor God in the midst of that circumstance? What should I think about God in the midst of that circumstance? That's the sort of wisdom that James's audience needed. And in that context, if we lack wisdom, when we are overwhelmed by the circumstances of life, particularly something like persecution, we can cry out to God, And God is not someone who says, you've asked me for this, but you know what? I don't feel like helping you out today. Come back in a week, come back in a month, come back in a year. You're kind of on your own right now, sorry. James is saying, God's not like that. God gives to all generously and without reproach. Generously is, he says yes when we don't deserve it. And without reproach is, he doesn't say Now, the last time I gave you advice, here's what you did with it, and I expect that's what's going to happen again, so maybe I shouldn't help you out this time. God doesn't respond that way, even though that's what we often deserve when we behave in sinful ways. But if we're going to ask for wisdom, we need to come confidently before God. Because sometimes we come before God about something that we really need God's help with, but we do it in a really tentative sort of way. God, I would uh, like you to do this, and I think it's probably a good thing, but um, I know I don't really know. Um, You know, it'd be a good thing if if you could help me out with this. That's not the attitude that that James is saying we should come before God with. It's not pride, because he's going to condemn that a little bit later in this section, but it's a confidence that says God is a good God who wants to give us wisdom, And so let's believe that he will. Why? Because if we come hesitantly, the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Some of this perhaps has to do with our commitment to seriously and truly following God. And I'm, I'm not saying that a Christian never has doubts, but if there is a hesitation and an unwillingness to say what God has said is true and I'm going to believe it, then we might find ourselves in this sort of place that God's not going to reward someone who is doubting, who is going back and forth between, do I really want to follow God? Do I want to follow my own way? And there's just sort of this inconsistency, instability. Sometimes 
that comes from being immature or naive. But sometimes that comes because in our hearts and minds, we haven't really answered the question of whether we think it's worth it following God. Think about it if you're one of these Jews who's been cast out. You've been scattered. They had reason to question whether it was still worth it to follow God, right? But if they hung on to that question, instead of saying, yes, I can still trust God, and yes, God is doing good things in the midst of this, and yes, I ought to confidently ask God to help me understand, or at least help me obey, even if I don't fully understand, to have the wisdom to live in a way that's pleasing to Him, that's what they needed to come to terms with. Verse 9, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Here are people who now possibly have little to nothing of what they had when they set out on their journey of following Christ. They've been cut off from family. They've been cut off from work. They've had to uproot and move to another place. They may be working some of the most menial jobs available to them simply to survive. And James surprisingly says to them, just like he says in verse 2, rejoice in trials. Verse 9, he says, the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. What high position? What I'm doing is not notable. It's not rewarding. It's just what I have to do to get by. Why am I supposed to glory in this? What is it that James is pointing them to? James, I think, is pointing them both to how God presently sees them and to the end result of persevering and enduring faith. How does God presently see those who the world sees as nothing? If they are trusting in Christ, God sees them as on an equal playing field with the richest person in the world, Because ultimately, it's not about money in the sight of God. It's about whether we're right with Him through Christ. Let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. How does God see him now? As one who is forgiven and part of his family. What has God promised in the future? We know from other passages, there's all the blessings with salvation that are laid out for us, particularly in a book like Ephesians. And whether someone had spoken those truths in those particular words, probably not at this point, but at least those ideas are, are found in the words of Christ and the apostles as they preached. Yes, you will have difficulty in this world, but I have overcome the world. Yes, you have given up many things, but the one who has given up father or mother or brother or all of these things for me will receive many more times in the world which is to come. And so the person who in the world's sight is worthless, poor, not important, to be overlooked, is to recognize that in God's sight he is a joint heir with Christ 
and the blessings of salvation will be granted to him much sooner than he realizes. But then what about verse 10? The rich man in his humiliation, the Nasby fills in the words, is to glory, and that's probably the right sense. He is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away. What is it saying about the rich man? Just as the poor man ought to see the exaltation of his position in Christ, the rich man ought to see the humiliation of his pride in trusting in what he has instead of trusting in God. There's two possibilities here. One is that he's talking about the rich who are believers. And if so, then his sense is, poor people, rejoice in your exalted position in Christ. Rich people, humble yourselves before the God who has given you all that you will need and for whom you ought to be willing to give up all of these earthly possessions that you have. If he's talking, as he does later in the book, like in chapter 2, that there are the rich who oppress you and drag you into court, they who blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called, or even in chapter 5, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Then it's not so much an admonition to believers who are rich, of whom there probably would not have been many in the scattering, but more likely in the larger context of the book, he's saying this is a warning, an admonition, a rebuke, a call to repent, for those who are rich and who are trusting in their riches instead of in God. Because it's possible for them to think this. Look at what happened to these Christians. They followed God. They got scattered. They lost everything. Why would you ever do that? And James is saying, you're like the grass. I don't know if you guys water your yards. I haven't been watering my yard, and there are parts of it where the grass is just kind of crunchy to walk on. In the spring, it's nice and green. You have to mow it three times a week or it gets really tall. This time of year, the flower falls off. It withers in the scorching sun and wind. How long did that take? April, May, three months, something like that. If you are rich, don't trust in your riches because they are short-lived, they are untrustworthy, and they don't get you a better standing before God. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Here's the irony. Here's the poor man who's spending all of his time in working because he has to do it to survive. And here's the rich man who, it says, has all of these pursuits. He has free time. He has leisure time. He can do whatever he wants. And he thinks nothing can touch him. And in the midst of all those things, God says, your time is done. Give me an account of your life. And so James is saying, don't trust in riches, trust in God. Rejoice in your position in Christ more than your position in this world. And be humble in God's sight. Verse 12, blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, picks up the theme that he has already spoken of in verse 12. Uh, two, consider it joy. Verse three, that the testing produces endurance. And verse four, that that endurance leads to maturity. If you persevere under trial, it says once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. Who does the approving? 
God is the one who does the approving, and the approving is not, you did a really great job, so I'm going to let you into heaven. The approving is, you have, by my power which has upheld you, been faithful, and the crown of life, there's, there's discussion on what these crowns are. They're mentioned several times in uh, the New Testament. But the crown of life, I think, in this context is eternal life. Sometimes people have accused James of saying, works gets you heaven. And if we read a verse like this carelessly, we might come away with that conclusion. But blessed is a man who perseveres under a trial. Once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which God the Lord has promised to those who love him. Well, who is it that brought them to salvation? It's God. Who is it that sustains them in the faith? It's God. Who is it that receives the credit for their following him? It's God. That should not minimize the fact that, yes, they are faithfully following God, and, yes, we ought to obey all that God has commanded us to do. But James is not saying works gets you heaven. He's saying if you truly know God, your life will be characterized by perseverance and endurance, and the end result of that is the reward of being in God's presence forever. And so trials bring about our maturity, but trials also bring about our reward. The reward of seeing God's hand even when Everyone else around us has a different perspective on our standing in this world. The reward of verse 12, eternal life in God's presence for those who love him. And then the last thing this passage talks about is, what is God's work? What is God like? What is it that he is doing? Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. The word that's translated tempted is sometimes, in some passages, translated test. So how do you know the difference between a test and a temptation? The main point that I think James is making in this section is that God does not force anyone to sin. God does put us in situations where, is the, where there is the possibility of us sinning if we choose wrongly. Think about what we looked at in the story of Cain and Abel. The bringing of the sacrifice was, even if not laid out this way, a kind of a test, right? Here's an opportunity for you to come before God and show in an act of worship what do you believe about God? What is your attitude toward God? Abel brought the first of his flock, the fat sheep, the nice sheep, the one that would have made better eating than the runts over here because he wanted to honor God. Cain brought the leftovers of his vegetable garden. Satan saw it as an opportunity for temptation, and God saw it as an opportunity for testing. What did God say to Cain? If you do not do well, sin is crouching, waiting, lurking, ready to pounce, and it will rule over you, but you need to rule over it. Cain failed the test. He gave in to the temptation. Look at what it says in the next verse. 
Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Cain said to himself, It feels better to me to vent my anger at my brother than it does to humble myself and say what I did was wrong in your sight, God. Cain said, As lust conceived and gave birth to sin, I hate him so much I'm going to kill him. And he did that. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Ironically, it brought about Abel's death. But the thing that it ultimately leads to for everyone who loves and practices sin is physical death and eternal death. We see that in the book of Romans. It says that you're slaves to the one whom you obey. If you're a slave to sin, sin offers you pleasure and reward and wonderful things, and it gives you slavery and death and condemnation. And James says, don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. When you look at the circumstance around you, you might look at it and say, God is not good. God has put me here. Kind of like the the Israelites spoke in the wilderness. God sent us out here to die. What sort of God are we following? Why are we going after this Moses fellow? What sort of attitude are you going to have in the midst of the testing, the trial, the temptation? I have the right to do what I want. I have the right to sin, and I can blame it on God. James says, God's not like that. You have the responsibility to obey. And if you sin, that's on you, not on God. And this is a a powerful thing for us to keep in mind. When we are angry, when we are sad, when we are, uh, whatever other words you might fill in about some particular circumstance of life, those are often occasions, opportunities, times when we are tempted to think the wrong things about God, the wrong things about other people, and to do and say and act in ways that are sinful. Kids, if your parents say, you need to do something, and you think to yourself, I don't want to do it, and they come a little bit later and they say, why didn't you do this? Often one sin follows another sin, and you lie. I forgot. I didn't hear you. When the real answers are, I chose not to remember, and I didn't want to listen. Sometimes, it is, as adults, we think that uh, when God says something like, you reap what you sow, we're like, yeah, that's true, but not for me. I can lie, I can steal I can be unfaithful in some way in my life. No one knows. No one will find out. And no one will get hurt. James says you're listening to the voice of lust, which is giving birth to sin, which is bringing forth death. Not eternal death for the believer, but certainly many other terrible consequences. 
When a Christian sins, what does it do? It says to people around us, their God says they ought to do this, but they don't really love him or, or obey him enough to actually do it. They say that they're looking forward to some future reward, but what they really want is the same sort of rewards we get right now of temporary pleasure and fame and whatever else. And it gives them an excuse to say, I don't want that kind of Christianity. So however old you are, whatever sin or temptation you face, do not see it as an opportunity to blame God, to blame other people, or to get out without any consequences. Because God says, you are listening to lies. That's why James says, don't be deceived. God says, here's the sort of God that I am. And God says, if you choose to sin, you are responsible both for that sin and you will be held liable for the consequences that follow. That's another thing that we don't like to think about with sin. We don't like to think about the fact that sin has consequences. Death is the consequence that's described here, but death didn't happen immediately even for Adam and Eve, did it? But there were a whole lot of other things that went before death. Shame and uh, a separation in the relationship even between Adam and Eve. Um, all sorts of other evil consequences follow through even before we get to the point of death. But then the passage ends with reminding us again of God's work. Verses 17 and 18. And some people take the do not deceived as going with what came before, and some people see the do not deceived be deceived as introducing what comes next. The reality is we shouldn't be deceived about either thing, the nature of temptation or what God is like. And in fact, a wrong view of the one leads to a wrong view of the other. If I think temptation is God's fault, it's because I'm not believing the truth that he's introducing now. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Where do good things come from? They come from God. What sort of God? Coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. God's not a God who's nice one day and terrible the next day and unpredictable the day after that. God does not change. This works sometimes to our benefit and sometimes to our harm. If we are sinning, it works to our, our harm because God will hold us to the consequences of the sin that we have committed. If we are following Him, it brings us great comfort because God is not a man that He should lie in, so what He says is true and He will fulfill it. And we can rest in that. God is the source of good things. God does not change. And God is at work in His people. Look at verse 18. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the word of truth. It's the idea that God birthed us. God gave us life. And the way that He did that is through the message of the gospel. I think it's important to note, it says in the exercise of His will. Sometimes... Uh, people get hung up on discussions of free will and they make it sound like God is sort of cowering in the corner waiting for us to say yes and if we don't say yes, he'll be sad. God is the one who accomplishes salvation. 
There are things that we have to do. God says, turn away from sin, turn to follow me. But none of that happens unless God gets the ball rolling, keeps it going, and carries it through to the finish line, right? How does God save us? How does God work in our lives? By the word of truth. I think this connects back as well to what it says in verse 5 where it talks about lacking wisdom and God will give it to us. If God saved us by the word of truth, where is he going to give us the wisdom that we need for rightly responding in the midst of trials and temptations and all of these different circumstances? It's in his word. So when we say, God, help me understand this circumstance, help me respond rightly to this circumstance, God's not going to write things in the sky and say, here's what you ought to do today. God's going to bring us back to his word, remind us of truths that we've read, all of those sorts of things, which goes back to what we were talking about in Sunday school. If we really want God's wisdom, there has to be something that God uses to work with. If we know nothing about the Bible, our reception of God's wisdom is going to be very small, right? So we need to be reading and hearing God's word. We need to be thinking about God's word. We need to be talking to God based on his word. And then we need to be living out the things that we have come across in his word. And then verse 18, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. For me, this has echoes of what we see way back in creation. Here is Adam and Eve in the garden. God said, I made fish and birds and things that crawl on the ground, and things that climb in trees, and, and all of these sorts of things. But the highest of the things that I have made is man. And in salvation, there is the beginning of the restoration of that position of leadership, authority, responsibility, of God's people taking their place before the rest of creation under God, as part of those connected with Christ, so that we would be kind of first fruits among his creatures. Paul uses similar language in Ephesians 1 when he says, We were the first to believe in Christ. And then after he talks about, and the, and the Gentiles also are added. So the, the Jews have the privilege and the responsibility to be among the first of, of, of God's creation to hear and to receive the gospel. And they ought to rejoice in that privilege, and they ought to see the hand of God in it. And all of these things taken together, I think, shape our perspective on the understanding of why God brings trials into our lives. Not that we fully understand all of the specifics, but in broad terms, why do trials come into our lives? To mature our faith. in anticipation of the reward that holding up under them by God's grace will bring and revealing to us the character of the God who's at work in us. And so maybe you're in a trial now, maybe you've recently been in a trial, maybe you're about to be in a trial. Do you have the attitude that this passage describes? Are you able by God's grace to count it as joy? Not fun, not easy, not the top thing on my list of things that I necessarily wanted to do at this specific point in my life, but
but as joy because following God in the midst of this trial will grow my faith in a way that not having gone through the trial wouldn't. Do you keep sight of the reward that follows? What's the best thing that you could possibly receive? Sometimes we think it's relief from the trial, but the best thing that we could possibly receive is eternal life in the presence of God forever, and that is laid out as the end result of persevering through trials in faith by God's grace. Is that worth it? The passage would say yes. And because we often doubt the character of God in the midst of these sorts of circumstances, for the believers who were scattered, it was, I have no home, no food, no family, no work, at least not of the sort that I had back in Judea or wherever they lived before they were scattered. Does God still care about me as one of his people? For us? You know the trial that you're going through. Does God still care about you in the midst of it? Did he put you in it so that you would definitely sin and so he could say, yeah, there they went, they messed up again? No, if sin happens, it happens because we choose to give in to temptation and listen to the voice of lust and believe the lies of the tempter. It is not God's fault. God instead is the one who gives good gifts who does not change, who continues to work in our lives. It's not easy to keep all these things in mind. It's not easy to count trials as joy. It's not easy to keep sight of the reward to come. And it's not easy to remember always what God is like. But James says, to people who are going through great difficulty, this is what you need to do. Count trials as joy because they mature your faith. Keep sight of the reward because God will give it to all of his people who persevere to the end. And remember what the God that you have believed in is like. He's not the one who causes you to sin. He is instead the one who gives you good gifts, doesn't change, and keeps working in your lives even in this. Let's pray. Lord, help us to grasp these truths, to think on them, to live in light of them. We need your grace and help to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.